Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul. I hope you're doing very well today. My guest this week is Cal Fussman. You may not have heard of Cal, but you have probably read his work. Over the past 30 years, Cal has interviewed a truly breathtaking array of the world's most fascinating people. Check out this list, (laughs) this just absurd list of people that he's interviewed. Nelson Mandela, Clint Eastwood, Barbara Walters, Richard Branson, Muhammad Ali, Mikhail Gorbachev, Neil Young, Serena Williams, Tim Ferriss, Kobe Bryant, Al Pacino, Pele, and literally hundreds more. He's the co-author of Larry King's New York Times bestselling memoir, and he won a James Beard Award for his story about how he became a sommelier. And for one night was the sommelier at Windows on the World in the World Trade Center. Today, Cal hosts the Big Questions podcast and speaks on big stages all over the world. Cal was coming to Atlanta for such an event this past week. And my good friend Merrick First from Georgia Tech and from Flashpoint and other sundry technological ventures connected Cal and me. And we scheduled an interview, a joint interview, where we're going to do two separate interviews. He was going to interview me, and I was going to interview him for our respective podcasts. But in the meantime, on October 7th, Saturday, October 7th, the terrorist organization Hamas killed over 1,000 Israelis, 1,000 and counting. And Cal came down, and, and neither of us felt it was terribly appropriate to have the straightforward interviews that we normally have on our podcast. Instead, we talked and tried to make sense of these atrocities, tried to understand what they mean on a, on a personal and international level, what the source of these atrocities is, and if there's anything that can be done. Now, neither of us claims to be an expert in international politics or the Middle East specifically. We both have somewhat functional understanding of of what's gone on over there in the past 80 years. And so it's really just kind of, it's really me talking to Cal, interviewing Cal, because he's been to Israel, he's Jewish. And so this is a far more personal thing to him than it is to me, although any human being can see that it's horrific. Speaking of the horror, I want to acknowledge that there are several references in this conversation to Hamas beheading babies. That had been widely reported that morning. And since that time, no one has been able to confirm that this happened. So I don't want to proliferate that as as a thing that supposedly Hamas did. The atrocities that they did commit are documented and beyond terrible. But that specific one has not been documented. And so let's just, I just want to acknowledge that up front. Also, I want to acknowledge that this is without, without any equivocation, without any apologies for the horror that Hamas committed on that day. There will be thousands of innocent Arabs who die in this conflict in this most recent version of this conflict and their lives are equally as valuable in the eyes of God. 
speaking of whom, I, <laughs> I hope he's enjoying his vacation because he doesn't seem to be terribly interested in what's going on in the Middle East. This is Cal Fussman. One thing I notice when I tell a story about being in second grade mm-hmm. when President Kennedy gets shot, when young people hear it, you would think, oh, this is something so far in the past, they wouldn't care. Right. And yet they get riveted. And when I thought why, and I started to ask people why, they said that like the same thing happened to them on say 911, mm-hmm. or it could have been a high school shooting. Right. It's the first time for them mm-hmm. and their life is never the same. When you see stuff like school shootings, it's just a reminder that evil's a little, t- well, evil this week is, is, I think, accurate. Madness for school shootings, that there is chaos in the human spirit and that it's easy to go about your day pretending it doesn't exist. But when it comes out and it comes out as horrifically as it did this week, or when there's a school shooting on a smaller scale, where there's nobody to retaliate against. Is it that? Or is it, what was it about the Kennedy assassination that was so shocking? In all these cases, I'm thinking of this now from two perspectives. Mm -hmm. One, the perspective of somebody who's young, who's hearing this for the first time, that people ran into homes, grabbed babies, and beheaded them. Human beings. Human beings did that to other human beings. I don't know what that would do to the mind of a second grader. I'm I'm thinking about myself back in 1963 when President Kennedy was shot. And that was a little different because the news came in slowly. First, we found out he was shot. We didn't know he was had been assassinated by that point. So you are kind of hoping for the best when you run home and everybody ran home and turned on the TV and then to find out the president is dead and you're, you've just turned seven years old. What does that mean? What do you think it did to you? It completely changed my life because what happened is that night, my parents realizing that this is the first time he's dealt with death, that we want to make sure he can sleep okay. Mm-hmm. And this is all anybody was talking about. Were your parents Kennedy people? I'm I'm sure they voted for him. I mean, the, the You're not Irish young... Catholic. <laughs> You're a Long Island Jew. <laughs> yeah, but I'm pretty sure they voted for him. Okay. He was, and he's a young, handsome guy. Young, he's a, he's a father. He's got these beautiful young kids. Well Spectacular wife, right? Great intellect. Yeah, it was kind of royalty mm-hmm. in, in a way. And then to have that taken down, and then very soon after, on TV, the suspect in the case is shot at a, like a police station. Mm-hmm. And so you're wondering, what what's going on here? Like in my mind, it's hard to judge because like I didn't live through... World War II or the Korean War, but that was a moment that changed my life for two reasons. One, 
understanding the fragility of it all. Mm -hmm. Things that you thought were made of stone. And when I say stone, they, they could have been turned into statues. All of a sudden had crumbled before your eyes. So it's a it's it's both a shock at the violence, but it's also a loss of innocence because the things that you believe in, you realized are not permanent. Things that appeared to be permanent are not permanent. Yes, and this is why I'm kind of interested to see where you're you'll take the conversation. Mm-hmm. It changed my life because that night after my parents sat me down and said, "Look, the country has a." plan to deal with this it's happened before <laughs> the country planned it by the way it was well, like, <laughs> they didn't yeah, say it the that cia way. has been planning this they for didn't, years they didn't they didn't <laughs> put it that way they said the country's got a plan and everything's going to be okay you had breakfast last saturday at home and tomorrow you're going to wake up and you're going to have the same breakfast and you're going to go out and play yeah and they were just trying to reassure me, go go to sleep and get a good night's sleep. Things will be better in the morning. And I just sat at the table and to show you how naive I was, I thought if you had a middle initial, that means or that meant you got to be president. <laughs> LBJ, RFK, JFK. Uh, Harry S. Truman. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Dwight, Dwight D. Eisenhower. Eisenhower. Sure, yeah. John Fitzgerald Kennedy. John F. Kennedy. So I'm thinking, this guy, this vice president, Lyndon B. Johnson, he knew he was going to be the president. Right. And how's he feeling? What does this make him feel like? Because is he happy to be the president? He knew he was going to be president all along, but... Maybe he's like terribly sad to be president because it's only because of the assassination. And then I thought, oh man, maybe he's scared that they're going to try and kill him too. But here, here's the thing. What I did is I picked up a piece of paper and I had just been taught like how to write a letter mm-hmm. and send it. And so I just wrote like, dear President Johnson, how does it feel? And I ran through the possibilities mm-hmm. and then like wished them well. And I knew where the envelopes were, knew where the stamps were. I, I knew where to put my return address. And I just and you knew wrote to Pennsylvania Avenue. Well, I, did, I didn't know. It was just President Lyndon B. Johnson, the White House. Right. And licked the stamp. That's how we used to do it. Yep. Slapped it in the top right-hand corner. And I just put it in my pocket and didn't tell anybody about it. And next morning I got up, had my breakfast, went out to play and just dropped it in the mailbox and didn't think anything about it. After a while, nothing came back. But about six months later, my mom came running up the (laughs) steps What have you done? You're you're drafted. You're going to Vietnam. See, this is this dumbass. This is exactly why I wanted to do this podcast with a comedian, uh, because I I need to somehow deal with what just happened yeah. in in a in a way that can just shake me out of that feeling. And basically, the president wrote me back. 
through his handwritten or no no it, but what was cool about it was it was his personal secretary mm-hmm. Juanita D Roberts there was a spelling error in it oh wow that was before spell check though so typewriters didn't now, have spell was, check but like this was like individually mm-hmm. written mm-hmm. and the, and the amazing thing about it was it was did not seem to be written to a second grader and I like I knew this when we got to this like, second sentence that began something like an answer to your query. <laughs> I had no idea what a query was. I thought Google invented queries. There was queries before Google. <laughs> there was there was queries before Google. <laughs> and this letter changed my life because yeah. all of a sudden the apartment filled with people. I all wanted to touch this letter to the mm. president that the president had sent. Did he sign it? It was signed by her. Okay. Well, that's honest, at least. Yeah. The fact that it like got up that high mm-hmm. was very cool. And look, when you're in second grade and, you know, stationary, the White House president, you're made to feel like a big man. Sure. And it it basically taught me that a good question could get you to the most powerful person on earth or to the office right next to the Mm -hmm. most powerful person on earth. And it basically set my whole life in motion. Yeah. Wow. And I'm, I'm wondering, I, it would not surprise me if there is somebody very young uh, in Israel, the news of that is going to completely shape their life. Watching the news the last few days, I'm, being reminded of things that I might have known in the past and yet I hadn't, I don't think about on a daily basis, which is that all those homes in that region have safe rooms in them, all of them. So dealing with missiles is a daily thing. It is a part of their lives. So chaos and living under threat on both sides of the Israeli-Palestinian divide is a real thing. And there's no overstating the savagery of what happened and so there's no mitigating it but does it at all affect the amount of shock if it's just already part of your life seems to me like if you're thinking let's let's think about like suburban long island 1962 63 63 sorry right november 63 you're riding your bike you're going to school you're eating your lunch you're watching Creature from the Black Lagoon. I don't know what you were watching back then on the black That's, and white TV. You know what? That that exactly what I was watching. Yeah. So so like your life is pretty innocent and idyllic. What was the biggest threat, you know, in your life prior to that? Polio? That's the thing. I don't think I knew of one. Right. So I don't I don't know. I mean, this is pure speculation, but to say, you know, if you're a toddler and you can hear bombs going off, you know that there's existential threats on some level long before this stuff happened. For this, you know, this hor- horrific weekend happened. Well, it's impossible to know what's in the minds of any of those people, no matter how close they lived mm-hmm. or no matter how many safe rooms they've ducked into over time. You know, I, I was told by somebody who saw a video. So I didn't see it myself mm-hmm. that when the missiles started to be shot at that like dance festival, that mm-hmm. piece right. 
festival that there were like people were were dancing. Yeah, they probably thought it was that, fireworks or something like that. That, that could have been the, the first thought. But also it was pointed out to me that you know, there, there were, were some people, as you're saying, who like, got used to it and maybe thought, you know what, if it's going to land right here, it's going to land right here. It doesn't matter if I'm ducking and covering. So I might as well dance. And I can remember this was the war in Iraq where Saddam Hussein started firing missiles over Scuds. at Israel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that word in years. And I think there was a violinist who was on stage while the alarms went off. And the violinist just kept playing. Other people were putting on, like people in the audience were putting on gas masks and, mm-hmm. and the violinist just kept playing. Have you been to Israel? Yes. How many times? Uh, once. When did you go? Around not 83, a bir- Not a birthright trip. No, no. And I actually came through uh, Tunisia and Egypt before I went there. Did you feel safe in the Arab countries? Yeah, I did. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to now begin to trace the way toward 911. Right. And again, I'm thinking of, of the mind of, say, a second grader. Remember the uh, Challenger? I remember that very clearly, yeah. Uh, like, how old were you? when That was 86, when, right? Uh, yeah, was it 86 or 85? I think so. Right. And I was a junior in high school, or thereabouts. Were you watching it on TV? No, but it was... Uh, it wasn't live, but it was, I think they interrupted the end at this point. I remember watching, I believe I watched the first space shuttle go up in like sixth grade. And so by the time Challenger came around, there'd been a few space shuttles. But this was the first school teacher. Right. Christine McAuliffe. Right. That went up. And so all over America, Mm -hmm. second graders were watching the first school teacher Mm -hmm. go up. I mean, it was shown in the, in the classroom. Mm Mm-hmm. And what? There's a physics lesson for you. <laughs> oh, man. Make sure check oh, the man. O-ring. I'm not trying to make a oh, joke. Man. I'm just oh, saying, man. wow. Well, you know what? It's kind of interesting because you just made a, a great point. Both those problems started from technological breakdowns. But I think we'd even gotten to the point where it'd been a long time since there was a NASA-based disaster. None of the kids who were in sixth grade in 1986 or even juniors in high school remember what was the Apollo program where they had you know, people died on the launch pad, that kind of thing. So we had gotten lulled into the sense that oh, we're just going to space. It's just, it looks like an airplane. It's not any different. We've done it like, what, six times? Come on, this is old hat. And all of a sudden you're like, no, wait a minute. What we're trying to do is very, very difficult here. This isn't something that is that you should take for granted. I wonder if... There was some of that in the technology that protected the Israelis that they might have taken for granted. That makes a lot of sense. I I think we've gotten so lulled into these domestic political spats with the current petulant dipshits that we have in our Congress paired with a bunch of catatonic octogenarians. You go, well, chaos is just the order of business and then you go 
oh, wait a minute, there's an international crisis. We actually need our politicians to do something. And they're not there because they're, they're having these little hissy fits to get you know, time on cable news. And to that point, you had the whole Israeli society divided by Netanyahu. An, an issue in the Supreme Court that when you look at it now, what did that really mean compared to directing all of your focus and energy on protecting Staying your people? Alive. Existential issues. Yeah. That really was, you know, defensive strength was really, and I've only heard, like, I've listened to an hour interview with Netanyahu a few months ago, so I don't know much about Israel, but like, he's a security hawk, right? I mean, he's not, this is a guy that you would think would be all about the armed forces and keeping the population safe. Well, his brother died yeah. in the, uh, in Entebbe, mm -hmm. uh, when hostages were taken and the brother went in to try and save them. So were your grandparents or parents in when did they come to the United States? I'm trying to get to are they what's your yeah, how, what's your family's Holocaust uh, well, relationship? It, it, it's something that I'm not completely sure of. Mm -hmm. But my grandparents on my dad's side came from Ukraine, and apparently the village that they lived in was wiped out during World War II. They came right after World War One. So there's something that just makes me think of the pivots and decisions that, that we make mm -hmm. that are life-saving. And I think that most people who came from Eastern Europe to America and they you know, started in Brooklyn or the Bronx and they moved out to Long Island and, and then their kids went to college and it's now the third or the fourth generation would have developed some kind of like immunity that you're thinking, okay, that happened then, but but that's what's at the essence of what happened last is it, week. Is it immunity or is it denial? You know, I mean, like, is it just you? You, you just want to will your children to safety so badly that you just want to say, move forward in this new safe community, and we've put it behind us. The words are never again. Right. That's what we heard again and again and again and again right. and then you, you what is it, see what is, this there's the smith song uh never not until the next time right like it's never going to happen again but it's gonna it happen. it's they say it's never again but then you haven't had to wait more than three or four years in any of the last 50 years until there's some kind of horrific terrorist attack bus bombing there's uh you had 67 you had the yom kippur war you had munich you had uh, I mean, just fill in the blanks. This is maybe the worst since in the last 50 years, but it's it's one of many in a series of attacks against Israel, right? Yeah, I, I think it's the beheading of babies that just puts it in another dimension. Where do you think that comes from? Not just the willingness, but the the intent to do that. Well, if you're educated to do that and, and you're angry... That's where it comes from. I kind of sensed this when ISIS was developing. I, I remember I'd be going to breakfast table with Larry King and... Tell us what that is before you proceed. <laughs> well, well, I went out to write his book in 2008 mm -hmm. and... You co-wrote his autobiography. Right. And 
he it started with him saying, come to breakfast. And he had all of his buddies from his childhood there and then other people that he met. And I basically kept having breakfast with him every day till 2020, since well, what, 12 years. What would Larry King have for breakfast? He hated eggs. He hated eggs? <laughs> hated eggs. Very rare for him to order eggs. But, you know, the the places that he went to were Jewish delis. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of bagels and lox right. and that sort of fare. And you would listen to the stories. And like, he had a very clear look at at history. And when I brought up, you know what? Something's going on with ISIS that we haven't seen before. Mm. People at the table were, were basically saying, Cal, like, what, what's going on? You're, you're exaggerating this. Or they didn't, they didn't think it would be as brutal as it turned out to be. Mm-hmm. But it basically opened the door to if you are a radical Muslim and you feel like somebody's the enemy, you just have the right to decapitate them. Is this a recency bias in the sense that we believe since it's happening now and to us or coincidental to our lives? Haven't humans just been at their worst, awfully, terribly evil throughout human history and figure out a way to justify their acts based on some conjured up philosophy? Which is another way of saying religion. Yeah. Well, look. I mean, the Bible is full of atrocities. Yeah. And that was written thousands and thousands of years ago. Well, the thing thing about it is when there's an atrocity, it never really gets wiped away. You need like four, five, six generations of cleansing Mm -hmm. for, for people to forget. And then when you have something like the Holocaust happening, the, the whole point of the Holocaust museums and the people who are trying to get every detail down mm-hmm. so that it could n- never be negated, never be argued against, they want to make sure that this will never be forgotten. I, what I wonder is if... It's basically, say, 10% of the people in any situation that have the capacity to do this mm. that or can be pushed to do it or can be angry enough to follow orders and mm. do it. So my wife and I just watched this documentary. And I believe it's called Ordinary Men. And it's about Nazi death squads that were composed of middle-aged postmen, dairy workers, bakers, just guys, middle-aged guys, family guys. And they were recruited to, you know, carry out extermination of hundreds and hundreds of Jews. And they did it because it was their duty. And so there's also the, the, you know, the silent majority who doesn't do anything because they're concerned about their own family or they don't want to make waves or they don't want to get killed themselves. And so there's this, it seems like there's this continuum of propensity to evil. Some people who might be prone to enjoy it, radical people, people who believe in an ideology. Then there's people that could be cajoled into participating. 
And then there's people that will simply not participate, but not actively oppose it. And then there's maybe a 10% that will vehemently oppose it. And get killed in the process. And it may be that that's just the way the world is. It's hard for me to imagine that as frustrated and angry as the Palestinians who are basically like entrapped in, in that zone or on the West Bank, that all of them, that the mothers there would say, yeah, let's do that. I think it's a 10% thing that can actually grow. People become scared of that the 10% will come and hurt them if they're not following along. And I, look, I'm saying 10%. I, I'm just making this stuff up. Sure. But it, 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 there's an idea behind it, that there are people who really do like to do this stuff. And they're, they're all over the place. When did you realize that this was more than just some random car bomb? When you say this, meaning? Meaning the, the Hamas incursion into Israel on Saturday. Because I, I was watching the news on Saturday, and I saw Hamas kills people a few like and i and i i I, it kind of caught my eye but then i didn't realize what a big deal was until until monday actually when i was driving home from where we were over the weekend and i was like oh this is this is a slaughter this is this is this isn't like a couple of hamas guys you know rogue hamas guys this was a massive organized slaughter of innocents when i think back on it i knew immediately and i knew when the first plane hit the World Trade Center, hmm. there, was, there were people who thought, well, this could be a crazy accident. Right. No. Yeah. I, the, the moment that I heard it, I knew it was a terrorist attack. And I remember people talking about Osama bin Laden. Mm-hmm. I'd never heard of Al-Qaeda. I'd never heard of bin Laden until after 9-11. I was in LA at the time. I woke up early to go to the gym. And I heard the NPR guy say, a plane has hit the world. And I was like, oh, that's just a, that's some accident. I, I didn't know. Tell your connection to the World Trade Center. It's an interesting connection. It was a very jolly connection. <laughs> uh, for a few years, uh, I was writing this column for Esquire magazine mm-hmm. called The Perfect Man. And the idea was to do the things that every man should be able to do in Mm -hmm. order to feel like they were perfect. And the only reason we called it that is because I had so many things to correct. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the last ones was the perfect man should know how to order a bottle of wine when they're at a table. This is true. So that, that was the point to take something that you needed to know and find an expert who could show you how to take it to the highest level. And in this case, the highest level of the World Trade Center was Windows of the World. Quite literally the highest level. Yeah. And at a certain point, they poured more wine there than any other restaurant in the world. It it was majestic. And it's a place that people would be so happy to go and so often proposed and then you bring over a bottle of champagne. And that's over two years, 
of traveling around the world and learning about wine and then going to work at Windows and pour wine for people as a sommelier until one night I was the sommelier. Mm. And it was one of the most joyful experiences of my life. And then seeing that plane go in and knowing what happened without even having to hear the news. Where were you on 9-11? I wasn't in in New York. I had moved to North Carolina. Mm. And so I was watching it on a TV and I I got up to New York pretty quickly afterward. And I, I was writing this column for Esquire magazine. And so they connected me with the National Guard and they allowed me to spend half a day and a night there. Mm, on the pile. Yeah. And, you know, there's... What do you remember about that? I remember it, it, it was actually kind of a strangely humiliating moment because it just showcased how much I couldn't understand it, even though I am like standing on the ashes. But there were, there was a parking lot that was like filled with cars covered with ash. And after going around the whole site for maybe 12 hours, I looked up and I talked to the captain who had been taking me around. And I said like, why don't they get their cars? And he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Cal, I think a lot of those car owners aren't alive anymore. Wow. I couldn't process that. Yeah. And I was at the the site recently. I was there two weeks ago. And, you know, they've got all the names clearly put out in, in front of you. And I took time to go through name after name after name after name. And that's stunning. And that's 3,000. Now imagine if there were 6 million. What you're seeing are like the levels here. Yeah. I heard I heard a reporter say that in Israel right now, there's the same kind of missing posters hanging up as there were around New York after 9-11, which I remember seeing even, I don't think I went back to New York for six months after that, but they were still up. And then my son and I went to the 9-11 Museum when we were back there for Fashion Week two or three weeks ago, and they have those posters in the, you know, the, the sheets have yellowed and you're like, oh yeah, I remember that. So think about trying to reconnect with your family in 1945, you know, a couple countries away in a world with no internet, no email, barely any phones. I know that when my grandparents on my dad's side left Ukraine and were trying to get through Europe to get a boat to the United States, uh, they were like shaken down at one point. So whatever they had was basically taken away. And somehow there was that they got enough for my grandfather to go over and my grandmother had to stay. They might've been with friends. And so that the two women stayed and the, and the two men uh, went to the United States, made money and then sent it so that they could come over. But it's the same point. You leave and you have no idea. It's not even like there's cell phones. Back then, how long would it take the mail with money in it to come right. 
cross an ocean where they could and and you know think about okay now send the message back how how long well, it took Lyndon Johnson six months to write you back <laughs> and he's the president of the United States yeah but he's a busy guy he's busy he was a busy guy you know you start talking about all these things and they're all going to hit people differently talk to me as a Jew I think you're feeling this based on what I can tell from my friends on social media and I've got dozens of cherished Jewish friends. How is it hitting you differently than it's hitting other people for whom it's empirically evil, but it's not personal? Yeah, I think I'm still trying to get a grip on it. I remember talking to a guy who had the World Trade Center fall on his head. His name is Michael Wright. I, I yeah. actually, I, I, almost every year on my podcast, I, replay, I play, yeah. play that episode. And this story first ran in Esquire magazine. And there are so many levels to this story where it starts when he's in the bathroom, when the, the plane hits and, you know, there's a guy taking a shit in the stall next to him. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> Hey, it was it was what eight nine o'clock in the morning? That's when the coffee no, kicks that's, in. That's, I mean, that's yeah, and and then you follow him mm-hmm. through the whole process of the woman's bathroom. The door is just in a state where they, nobody can get out, and they have to like smash it down to get the women out. And and then there's. An order, like nobody knows what's going on. There's an orderly filing. What floor was he on? Uh, it was the 81st, and he is asked if he knows CPR, and he says, Yeah. And they said, Do you mind like going back up just in case there's somebody who needs it? And he says, Fine. So he's one of the last to get down the stairs, and then he makes it into the lobby and there he's seeing just heads and like bodies turned into pieces of meat Mm. and he gets out and you're feeling as he's telling it okay he's he's good he's he's out and that's when he looks up and he sees in the millennium hotel which had sort of a mirror like cover the towers beginning to descend on him, one of the towers, descend on him. And he just starts running in into the other building and it basically falls on him. I can remember as it's coming down, he's saying, oh no, Jenny and Ben, Jenny and Ben, his wife and his son. And he's thinking like that's the last thing he's going to ever say. And then he kind of wakes up gagging and, and coughing and he's like entombed, but he's alive. Mm-hmm. And now he's thinking he's going to be like one of those people in Pompeii. <laughs> Only he's not going to be able to move and he's going to like slowly feel his death every second of it. But he was able to just shake the debris off him and then start crawling. And 
that's only the beginning. Mm -hmm. And at the end of it all, what his mind did was put it in a perspective. And it's still this day, that day, he just said, you know what? This has been going on on earth for thousands of years. All these moments where like danger strikes and I just happened to be close to this one. So he put it in a place where it had some kind of order to it or... Well, if randomness has order, yeah. Yeah, that, okay, the dice are going to get shaken and I happened to be near when the lightning bolt came down. But your other choice is to try to go live in a field somewhere, but you could have a tornado there. Mankind is not the only danger on this planet. That's true. And I, I remember I remember traveling through Bolivia on the Altiplano. Mm -hmm. High plane for my non-Spanish speakers. <laughs> and there was a sheep herder out mm -hmm. in the middle of nowhere. And he was dressed very traditionally. It could have been wearing the clothes that his great-grandfather wore, or great-great-grandfather. Scottish bankers did that too. <laughs> That's why I wanted to do this podcast with you. <laughs> and I drove by this guy and he's out there. The only site in miles, wherever you look. And I thought, you know, if there was a nuclear explosion, this guy would not know about it. But he could get Lyme disease or whatever well, the Bolivian equivalent is. Yeah. If you're going to look at it that way, it can happen to all of us. It's It's just... I think the difference is there are accidents and there are evil things people do and there are people who will decapitate babies. There's levels here. So what do you do about it? Because obviously Israel is, and, and I don't want, I, I have clearly refrained or intentionally refrained from offering political analysis on social media because nobody needs to hear what I think about the Middle East, because I, I know so little about it. All I posted was to my Jewish friends, I love you. That's all. That's 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 the only thing you can do right now. I love you. I miss you. I'm. I support you. Whatever. And now Israel is left with this horrible dilemma, because the instinct is to go and do what we did over 20 years after 9/11. Population demands action. President Bush, and he's a man of action. He's a man of black and white, good and evil thinking. But in fact, that reaction to go into Gaza with foot soldiers will lead to decades of, well, years anyway, of worse occupation of more and more deaths, Israeli and Palestinian. So what do you do? Yeah. If you look at it from that distance of how is this going to play out over the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, it plays into that same narrative of, okay, you did this, now we're going to do that. And then the people on the bad end of what you've just put down are going to be more intense about hurting you again and the same cycles continue. But you know what? Mahatma Gandhi didn't grow up in the Middle East. No. And as difficult as 
this situation there was back in in the 40s. I've never really come across many people espousing the Gandhi line in the Middle East. It's just known that you have to come back with more power or you get no respect and then you're doomed. Well, it's very clear that Israel's neighbors want it eradicated. They don't want peaceful coexistence. There's no need to go into the why. There is only the the what now. And I, I guess a better question, instead of, you know, what is the potential, what is it, the spaghetti map of a hurricane, right, where it can go this way or it could go that way, and then if that happens, this happens or whatever. I'm less interested in speculating on strat political and military strategy than to say like what does it mean for you as an american as a human being what do you take away from this as to what you can do with your life to make any sense out of this thing well i don't know how to grow something without like any repercussions being felt on the other by the perpetrators it's hard to imagine just sitting back and saying, okay, this happened. We're never going to let it happen again. We're, we're going to enhance the security. It's inconceivable to me. I don't mean to say that retribute, that I guess it's the difference between addressing the issue and retribution and, and being perceived as strength. Because the problem is, is it's like these militant fighters are woven among the population to where you cannot get to them without killing the host. Well, th this, this, is the whole, this is the whole problem, that if we go back to that analogy, the 10%, yeah. okay, I know that there are many friends between people in Gaza and people in Israel. I mean, there are people in Gaza who go through the checkpoints and work in Israel. And maybe it's a friendship born out of necessity, but there is a difference between like a mother who would never want to see that happen to a child, like um, a Muslim mom who would never want to see that happen to any child, and the person who beheaded the baby. Without question. Without question. And the, the problem is if you go after the person who beheaded the baby and somehow then drop a bomb on the mom who would never want to harm a baby. The whole thing just keeps rolling. That's the real issue, that there hasn't been a government that is in the middle that Israel can work with to have a peaceful collaboration it just hasn't developed. I mean, they got close with the Oslo Accords, but Arafat didn't accept it, probably because he knew that the people on his side would want to kill him. <laughs> so Great situation. It's what they, yeah, this, there's no easy solutions here. I don't know. And I, you can tell like throughout this whole conversation, I'm struggling for words because... There are no easy answers here. The only easy answers are going to come to the people who just say, go in there and kill. This makes you think back to say, what should the United States have done after 9-11? Because we spent 20 years, trillion or trillions of dollars, thousands of American lives, 
God knows how many Afghani and Iraqi lives, and we're not in any better shape. And maybe even worse to leave and to leave behind people who thought that what you did when you went over there empowered them to live a better life in their minds. I'm speaking particularly about women. What does it all come back to, Cal? I, I think it comes back to like how to deal with the 10%. And what is the philosophy of the 10%? Well, the philosophy of the 10% is to... Fundamentalism. Yeah, to just live the way they want and to make everybody around them live the way they want and to punish anybody who doesn't. So how do we bring tolerance into that kind of world? Tolerance isn't welcome in that world. Well, that's the point. And you know, the other problem is when tolerance gets in charge, starts to tolerate things that shouldn't be tolerated. <laughs> you know, you look give me at, an example. Okay, of you look at you look at some of these videos you see in stores in California, mm-hmm. where you've got people just running in and just robbing and stealing and. You can't have a, a society that just functions like that. Look, there's a lot of inequities, there's a lot of problems, but there's got to be some normal rules of behavior. Mm-hmm. And sometimes tolerant people are, they just tolerate anything. It's because having any judgment, any judgment of anybody else right. is seen as verboten. Sorry to use German. That's almost as bad as saying crazy or insane. Any deviation from the orthodoxy of tolerance, the tyranny of tolerance, brands you as a deplorable. And you can't say, well, I can love somebody but not agree with every lifestyle choice they make. Or I can, I can love somebody or, or, and, and clearly demonstrate that their choices are infringing on my rights to live a peaceful life too. I mean, you know, your right to swing your fist ends where my nose begins. And we need some kind of law and order. And those videos out of LA and San Francisco are a pretty good example of where permissiveness goes way too far. But when you take it to beheading babies... Well, that's beyond the pale. Well, there you go. So the, the question becomes, all right, how do you pull that out by the root and allow... The 80% of the people who would get along normally mm-hmm. and and could be friends, how how do you just let that be planted and, and grow? Because it just can never be planted when you have that 10% just stomping on it wherever they see it. Yeah. And they have all the guns. That's that. It's that's it's, the problem. It's okay, like, it's, so that's the problem. It's like it's like it's like the drug issue. Are you going to solve the the addiction crisis by attacking the supply or the demand? Because as long as the demand is there, the supply will show up. It's the drug of the philosophy that is causing this. It is using a combination, a wicked cocktail of it's it's using it's using the philosophy of Islam and some degree of legitimate complaints in their circumstances to create murderous monsters. And you can't kill all of them. 
unless you kill everybody. You can't bomb Gaza into compliance. Well, that, that's why th- th- this is an incredibly difficult problem to solve. You tend to, in a normal circumstance in America, if somebody commits a crime, you find that person and somehow make them pay. In this case, finding the people who did that mm-hmm. is going to be really difficult. Mm-hmm. And you know what? You use the metaphor, pull them up by the roots. It's not a root-based plant. It's a, it's, like a, it's a spore, right? It's a mushroom. And that when you, know, you smash one, well, it that, spreads its seeds that, everywhere. That, that's, exactly the, that's exactly the point. Every time there's a funeral... You radicalize and, a dozen more uh, kids. Yeah. And understandably so. Say you're a moderate Gazan. As of Friday, you were a moterate Gazan. You had nothing to do with what happened right. in Israel. And now this you've weekend. got no food, you got no electricity, got no water, no and, water, and, you, and bombs and holy are coming hell down. is going to be rained down upon That's, you. Yeah. And so and that I, I am not <laughs> I am not I stand with Israel, I stand with peaceful Muslims. But a lot of those guys are going to be pretty anti-Israel in a very short period of time. This war doesn't stop with force. I mean, it's got to stop some other way. It's been going on for as long as we've been alive. It'll probably be going on for a long time after we're dead. Well, that is the way Michael Wright looked at his circumstances after the World Trade Center fell on his head. Mm. That this is the way the world works. And you just got to be as strong and protective as you can and hope that you don't get near those lightning strikes of danger. But there's, there really is something about this when it gets to beheading babies that is different and maybe it needs a solution that nobody's ever thought of yet. Like what? You, I think you got two extremes here you're talking about. You can either nuke the shit out of them and kill them all or you can take a Gandhi approach and say, we're done with this horseshit. We're not going to respond. And I don't think either of those is likely. I think what's going to happen is going to be just, it's going to be in the middle and it's going to be worse and it's going to be long lasting, protracted, and tens of thousands of people are going to die. And it's not going to improve anything at all. It's just going to kick the can down the road. You know, you know what my solution would be? What's that? I think that a certain piece of land somewhere has to be found for people who can find a good home there. I I look for the real estate agent who's going to come up with the perfect property in in Montana. Well, I don't know that the Jews would give the land up. They're not mountain people. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I of don't course know. not. Moses, Nobody wants Moses was uh, went to the top of the mountain he to did. get the commandments. He so, did. Like this becomes such a bigger conversation because if you look, we're at, not going to solve it here in my red I, booth this morning. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, like, how strong democracy is in the world right now. It's a legitimate question. This is something that I've been talking about for a while, yeah. and it it, it affects all of us, this lack of connection when two edges are just pulling the middle like a oh yeah, oh, rope yeah. in a tug of war. And 
if the middle would just be allowed to exist, well, maybe it would look like Sweden or Norway. Right, right. But we're in a place where it's 10% on each side. Mm -hmm. They're really not tolerant of the middle. They just want what they want. No. And it weakens the whole structure. Absolutely. And I keep thinking that there's something that's got to be done by the people in the middle. They have to actually become as ferocious as the people on the extremes in order to take charge. Because in all these cases, the people in the middle, for the most part, can live with one another and can live with everybody and be friendly and Mm -hmm. be good neighbors. It's the people at the edges. It's the 10%. You know, after 9-11, there was a spirit of not just patriotism, but kindness toward your fellow human for a little while. Now, that was... Well, I don't know. It it, it was kindness. It it wasn't kindness to a lot of Muslims from the American point of view. This is true. I mean, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it was it was kindness to the people that we viewed as ourselves mm-hmm. and unkindness to people who we viewed as the outsiders. It's really hard. We don't know who people really are. We look at somebody and make assumptions. We don't listen like we used to. Mm-hmm. We listen to confirm now, you know, that <laughs> instead of to learn. That's right. I'm not saying that in the past people didn't have the the same problems. Look what the United States did to the Japanese that that were here in World War II. They put them in the, the Nisei camps. And I get it because when you're threatened, you do extreme things. So there's really no way around that. It's hard for me to imagine a different response. Now, if you could say, you know what? We're going to be extreme against the 10%. Mm-hmm. And we're sorry, this has got to affect the other 90%. And maybe there's a way we can get the other 90% out of there. I am highly skeptical that that's possible. What can you do? What can Cal do? What can Paul do? Because that's the only thing we're in control of. Yeah. Here's a question for you. With the People who are trapped in Gaza, if they were offered like a nice place to live somewhere in in a group, like they're not losing their neighbors Mm -hmm. and they could work, they could feel good about their lives, could have exactly the kind of lives that just weren't living exactly where they're going to live because where they're going to live now, bombs are going to fall on it. Of course. Would they go, if, if it was offered to them, if there was a place on earth that they could say, you know what? There's a house waiting and it's nicer than the house you're living in right now. Mm-hmm. You can have the same neighbor. Mm-hmm. Would people be open to that or would they just say, no, this is where I live. I'm not moving and I don't care. They can drop bombs on my head. I don't know anything about Gaza. What I do know is that if you look at immigration patterns, the answer is yes. That people are immigrating to places like Scandinavia, yeah. the UK, EU, and the USA. They're not going the other direction. So the answer is yes. The question is, where and how the hell do you do it? 
you know, it's not like there's a now that's a big question. Gaza two. Well, that's you know, the big question. Papua New Guinea or something. I mean, like, you know, as Americans, we're I don't think we're super sophisticated or enthusiastic about welcoming strangers. And you know, some some of these concerns are, I think, more legitimate than others. And you have to ask. And I'm going to be careful here because I don't want to sound xenophobic, but you have to ask of these people who might move to the United States, which ones are most interested in assimilating into American culture and which ones want to bring their own culture here and spread their culture to America. You know, I'm not worried. There's five guys who speak Spanish working in our house right now. Those guys work their ass off. They're here at seven. They stay until seven. They're chasing the American dream one house at a time. Does everybody who comes here have that same attitude? I don't know. Here's the thing. I'm not even suggesting that people have to give up their way of thinking. Mm -hmm. I'm not suggesting that they have to go to a certain place. What I am thinking is if it was a case where you had people sitting down and saying, okay, we have to do something here Mm. that we've never done before. We have to make this for that 80%. We got to give them something that would make them think, you know what? That's a really good deal. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be in a better place. And for the, the 10% that just seems intent on fighting it, well, the bombs are going to land on them. If only. If only we could do that. Well, that's the Cal solution. <laughs> Thank you for bringing it. I, I, and I don't know where these, where these places are. Yeah. And unfortunately, when... Like the Palestinians have been pushed out of Israel. They're then pushed into refugee camps. That's not what I'm talking about. Yeah. I'm talking about like everybody gets an upgrade. Talking about air conditioning, swimming pool for the for the apartment community. It's gonna be like three's company. There's gonna be the legal beagle, regal beagle down the street. How could you make it a win win for eighty percent? who just want to live good, decent, normal lives. The the problem here, you know, the problem here is tyranny. That's the problem. Right? That's the the, the the problem. The people who are coming to the United States aren't coming from, you know, established democracies with market-based economies. They're coming from tyrannies. That's the problem. From tyrannical governments, from despots, from Venezuela, from all kinds of places where things are shitty because of their government. You know, and so Thomas Sowell, the economist, says there's no solutions. There's only compromises. Right. And so the compromise and and there have been times in history, you know, Northern Ireland comes to uh, mind where seemingly completely intractable situations have been addressed very effectively. There could be compromises. I mean, who would have thought 20 years ago that Saudi Arabia and Israel would recognize each other? Never would have thought that. Never would have thought that. So we don't know, but there has to be compromises that both sides are going to have to swallow hard to take. Because there's not a solution. You can't just, you can't take 90% of Gaza, relocate it, and then kill everybody else. Well, the people who committed the atrocities should get what they deserve. The world would be way better off without them. And the people who didn't commit the atrocities deserve something better. That wraps up the conversation. I believe then and I believe now that the Hamas attack was orchestrated by Iran 
and time to stop the establishment of warm relations between Israel and much of the Arab world. We can keep taking the violence backward as far back as the divide between Jew and Muslim during the time of Abraham, but I'd like to remind everyone of one thing. The Gaza Strip was handed over to the Palestinians by Israel in an attempt at making peace in the 1990s after the Oslo Accords. Israeli settlers on that land were forcibly evicted by the Israeli military with the idea of clearing a path for a peaceful solution. Three decades later, the situation is as bad as it's ever been. Now, on one side, we've got Russia dependent on Iran for drones and its attempt at crushing Ukraine. North Korea is also supplying Russia with weapons. And they're all aligned with China, which seeks to take control over Taiwan. Meanwhile, the United States has sent its navy to support Israel, and the many European nations behind Israel have large Muslim populations who will look at the Palestinian casualties the way Jews look at the casualties of their brethren in Israel. I can remember the last leader of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, telling me, we will have peace for all, or there will be no peace at all. In order to have it, seems to me, those who don't want it will have to go away. That's Cal Fussman, and I look forward to having him back at some point in the future, near future, when we can talk about more pleasant things, like his incredibly interesting life and personal journey and the insights he's gained by asking the big question to hundreds and hundreds of people and his insights into what we gain as as human beings from asking big questions, but more importantly, from listening after we ask that question. How can we become better parents, better siblings, better friends, better business people, better artists, and more informed citizens of the world? And I did my best to listen this Saturday night when I was in the green room in between shows at the Laughing Skull Lounge with a, uh, a fellow Atlanta comedian named Khaled Al-Chufi. Khaled's a younger guy. What is he, 30 maybe? Khaled, I don't know how old you are. I apologize. But he's much younger than me, different generation. And his parents come from Syria. And we had a long conversation. And it was without, again, without excusing any of the horrors committed by Hamas, not by the Palestinian people, but by Hamas, the terrorist organization that rules Gaza and that committed those atrocities on October 7th. But it helped me get a better understanding of what it means to be Arab. And I shared the story that I told to Cal that I posted on Facebook to all my Jewish friends, I love you. And he was like, you know what, would you post to all my Arab friends, I love you? Because, you know, with the suggestion being that it wouldn't be taken in the same way. Well, certainly not last week it wouldn't have been, and I wouldn't have posted it last week. But it also got me thinking, like, I just don't know that many Arab people. I know very few, in fact. The ones I can that come to mind are in the low single digits. And since I posted that post on Facebook about, you know, sending love to all my Jewish friends, I'm reminded of how many wonderful Jewish friends I have. I grew up in Atlanta. I didn't know... I don't think I, I really had a conversation with a Jewish person that I knew about until I was in college. 
And there were like two Jewish guys at my college that I knew about. Certainly when I went to business school and then worked in the media business in New York City and Los Angeles for 15 years afterwards, I met dozens and dozens of Jewish people who have invited me into their homes and made me honorary members of their families. And I cherish those friendships. I really do. So I'm just more naturally inclined to listen to the Jewish side of the argument. And again, I'm, I'm not saying one side's right, one side's wrong. This is a long, complicated history. The most recent events, inexcusable, the actions of Hamas. But I don't have a full perspective for the Arab people, for the Palestinians. And there's an opportunity for me to grow and understand the nuance by asking good questions and listening. So that's it. Next week, I've got a very interesting and different interview with a guy named Daniel Carcillo, who is a former National Hockey League player. He has two Stanley Cup rings. He has the distinction of having had the most penalty minutes in at least one season, if not many more. And he tells the story of being an enforcer in the NFL, fighting for a living on the ice, and the head trauma, the brain injury he has sustained through that role. He's lost other friends to CTE and brain injury, and he himself was on the verge of killing himself until he started therapy using psychedelics, that is specifically psilocybin. And we talk a lot about that, how psilocybin has helped him reclaim his brain health and live a healthy and balanced life. That's Daniel Carcillo. That'll be next week. I look forward to sharing it with you. Until then, Mike Carano, make me sound smart. <laughs>